Hello and welcome to the Hope City Church podcast. We're always so encouraged to know that God is working through this ministry to touch lives. So if you have a story to share of how God's working in your life, please send a message to lifechange at hopecityonline.net. Now, let's prepare our hearts for a powerful message out of God's Word. Earlier this week, um, I've been excited about it for months, and you can make fun of me later for it, but... um, Earlier this week, my wife and I went and saw uh, the release of Won't You Be My Neighbor, which is the documentary on uh, the work of Fred Rogers on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, and it is hands down um, one of the coolest documentaries that I've ever seen. Highly recommend it. You need to go see it. Um, It is for sure, for sure a spiritually invigorating experience. One of the things that I've become convinced of after kind of reading through lots of um, biographical narratives on Mr. Rogers, as weird as he was, and let's just all be honest and get the elephant out in the room, this joker was super, super weird, right? Um, there was even this guy who, um, who was a, a famous cellist who went on Mr. Rogers and was, was playing the cello for him. And after he got through playing the cello, Mr. Rogers got right in his face and he said, I just want you to know you are so special. And the cellist said, it was one of the weirdest experiences of my life. But one of the things that has become abundantly clear is that Mr. Rogers was an ordained minister. And rather than standing in a pulpit and preaching the gospel, he demonstrated the heart of the gospel by communicating love, grace, mercy, acceptance in every conversation that he had. And generation after generation of children, 35 years of children grew up watching Mr. Rogers and grew up in the neighborhood and grew up seeing what it meant to be a living embodiment of body of Christ. And so it's been a really, really cool thing to be able to go back and kind of research and, 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 and study what his life was all about. But his show was centered around two concepts. The first concept was making sure that every child knew that they were loved. And secondly, making sure that every child knew they were capable of loving, right? And so you're not too far gone to be able to show love, mercy, and compassion to other people. And don't ever forget that you are loved, that you are unique, that you are special, and that you matter. And those two ideas were summed up through a question that he asked every single episode. And it ended up being the namesake of the film. Won't you be my neighbor? And by neighbor, what he meant is, won't you be somebody that I can show love to? And won't you be somebody that's willing to show love to me, right? Won't you be my neighbor? It's interesting that Jesus actually talked a lot about what it looks like to be a neighbor. More, more importantly, specifically, he talked about who our neighbors were. Throughout the Old Testament, we are told to love our neighbor. But Jesus steps onto the scene and he gives some specific implications of what it means to love our neighbor. And he also gives some deeper detail into what it looks like to love our neighbor the way that God wants us to love our neighbor. And so that's the passage that we're going to pick up this morning. Because I want to ask that question this morning. Who is your neighbor? And it's the same question that Jesus was asked when he responds through a very, very familiar and famous parable known as the Good Samaritan. There's going to be no new information here. Like everybody who's ever um, seen the news at 5 o'clock has heard of Good Samaritan stories. If you've ever picked up a newspaper, you've heard of the Good Samaritan story. And nobody has to fill you in or tell you how that story goes. Everybody knows the story of the Good Samaritan. The problem is I think we've ended up missing the point 
of the story of the Good Samaritan. Because here's what we end up doing. The implications of that story, we always imply that that story was written for the purpose of telling us how we should treat our neighbor. But that's not the question that was asked. That's not the question that Jesus answered. And that's not the point of the story of the Good Samaritan. Here's why I know that to be true before we even open the text. Because nobody has to teach you how to treat your neighbor. When someone is close to you, you naturally treat them a certain way, right? My, my wife is close to me, so I'm, nat I'm naturally compassionate towards her. I'm naturally caring towards her. My kids are close to me, so I naturally go out of my way to be sacrificial for them. Nobody has to treat you, or teach you how to treat your neighbor. You naturally know how to treat the people that are closest to you. The real question is not how do you treat your neighbor. The real question is who the flip is your neighbor? That's the Robbie paraphrase. If you're looking for a title of this sermon, you want to write something down, you want to tweet something, who the flip is your neighbor, right? Because we know how to treat our neighbors. I think our mistake is we forget who our neighbors are in the body of Christ. So Jesus does a fantastic job of addressing this in Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 10, picking it up in verse 25, the scripture says this. On one occasion, an expert in the law, also known as a Pharisee, stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, he didn't really care about what Jesus answer was going to be. He was asking the question because he knew what mainline Judaism taught. He knew what the, the theology that was popular of the day taught, and he wanted to see if Jesus would teach or proclaim something different. He was testing Jesus. So Jesus responds with a question, which by the way is a tactic that I would highly recommend for so many of us in the room. So often, here's what we love to do. We love to talk and share our opinions rather than asking the questions and seek to understand others, right? Next time somebody asks you a question, I want you to try something. Rather than answering the question, why don't you respond with a question? Two things will happen. Number one, you'll drive them nuts. But number two, you will ultimately get to the heart of their question, which most of the time you don't see in the onset. So Jesus asks him, well, I want you to tell me you're an expert in the law. What's written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? Jesus was emphasizing the importance of interpretation of the text. He answered, well, the law, I mean, the most important, the big one, the one that we all kind of hang our hats on is that one in Leviticus where it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus was like, nice job. You do this, you got it. You do this, you're in. He affirmed what Paul, the Apostle Paul wrote later in the New Testament when, when he said that the only thing that counts above all else is faith expressing itself through love. Loving God and loving others. You do this and you will live. But the guy wasn't finished questioning Jesus. He wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus this question, and this is the question we're going to be answering this morning. Who's my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And so Jesus responds by telling a story. The story goes something like this. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. And they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. 
a priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. For clarity, the road that Jesus chose to use to exemplify this particular account in his story is a road that most Jews were extremely familiar with. It was a road that most of the time was only about 16 inches wide because it wasn't really a road. It was a pathway kind of hugging the side of a mountain. So when you picture these guys that are walking by this man who's laying on the road half dead, don't think about somebody who crossed over into the other lane and kind of kept their chin up and didn't pay attention. These are people who literally would have had to step over and around a half-dead person laying on the road. So too, a Levi, when he came to the place and saw him passed on the other side, did the same thing as the first guy. And this is where the story for us assumes its familiarity. This is where the story when Jesus told it to his first listeners would have blown them away. Because Jews and Samaritans not only didn't get along, they hated each other. They tortured each other. They tortured members of each other's families. They kidnapped each other. They absolutely despised one another. It would be the difference between us and a terrorist that committed an atrocity like 9-11, right? So Jesus... In the middle of his story, now we all think of the good Samaritan, the person who stops, the person who helps, the person who gives their time, the person who, who sacrifices. That's who we think of when we think of the Samaritan because we use that phrase that way, the good Samaritan. But when Jesus uttered these words, everybody's jaws dropped and everybody started paying attention. But a Samaritan came. And as he traveled where the man was and he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. I love this next part. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him. I'm going to pay for my enemy. I'm going to pay for the care of the one who's done me wrong. I'm going to take care of the one who's come after me. And I'm going to do it at my own expense. Don't you dare think for a second that Jesus didn't choose his words carefully, intentionally, and wisely when he gave this example. He took his own money, gave him to the innkeeper, and said, look after him. And when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expenses that you may then Jesus pauses, looks back up at the religious leader and says, so, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? This man showed up to put Jesus in a corner. Jesus has got this joker backed into a corner because now all of his religious leaders who don't like the Samaritans either are all looking at him. Yeah, who? Smart mouth. And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. He couldn't even say the word, the Samaritan. It was just that, that one. Let's, let's all move past the descriptor that you gave. The one who had mercy on him, Jesus told him. Go and do likewise. Jesus said, I want you to operate like that. I want you to find the people that you don't get along with. I want you to find the people that you disagree with. I want you to find the people that look different than you, that act different than you, that don't follow and observe the same laws that you follow and observe, that don't care about the same things that you care about, that aren't passionate about the same things that you're passionate about. I want you to go and find those people because those are the people that I'm talking about when I say, love your neighbor as yourself. Right? 
Now, let me give just a little bit of background, a little bit of context, and then, and then I'll wrap up. I promise I'm not gonna be long. But these are important pieces of background to help you understand and see the context of the story that Jesus was sharing. In the first century, there was this fierce debate huge debate among rabbinical leaders, among the Pharisees and among the Sadducees over the interpretation of a particular passage. Sounds familiar, huh? Here we are 2,000 years later and we're still arguing over the interpretation of particular passages. But in the first century, there was one passage in particular in the Old Testament. It was Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, the verse about loving your neighbor. There was this fierce debate over who your neighbor was, who counted as your neighbor. Because in the same way that you and I operate today, they were trying to get by with as little as they had to. Okay, who is it we've got to love to be okay with God? Who is it that we got to get along with to be okay with God? Who is it that we got to show mercy and compassion to to be okay with God? Because I'm going to be honest with you, I want to do as little as I can get by with. So they were having this huge argument. Who qualifies as our neighbor? Right? But one thing that every side could agree on, Sadducees, Pharisees, and every rabbi who traveled and spoke in synagogues, they all agreed on one thing. It certainly didn't include the Samaritans. Everybody agreed. So when Jesus said the Samaritans, the good Samaritan was most like a neighbor. This absolutely obliviated everybody's theology, everybody's interpretation, everybody's understanding. Why? Because they hated the Samaritans. Another debate that was going on, and this is really important too, another debate that was going on were these Torah or biblical literalists versus oral traditionists. And let me explain what I mean by the two. The Sadducees they were religious leaders who held to Torah literalism. And by Torah literalism, they believed that it, exactly what the Torah said is how you operated in your life. And anything that stood outside of the Torah wasn't accurate or true because everything that you needed to know about your life was written literally, verbatim, specifically in the Torah. This is why the Sadducees did not believe in an afterlife. They believed in God. They believed that God created us. But the Sadducees in the first century did not believe in the afterlife that we would go and spend eternity with God. The reason they didn't believe that is because the afterlife wasn't mentioned in the Torah. And because it wasn't mentioned in the Torah, they made the assumption that it must not be important to God for us to know about. It must not be important for us to focus on. They didn't pay attention to the afterlife. They thought about this life and this life only because the Torah didn't mention it. They were Torah literalists. But there was another group of people the other group of people, the oral traditionalists, they basically said, look, we passed down a lot of information. Some things got in, some things didn't get in. There were some important things, some not so important things. It's not all in there. And there's some things in there that maybe shouldn't be in there because it was oral tradition and it, it hasn't really been made official, right? And so they practiced a philosophy called Pequot Nefesh. And that philosophy said this, and it guided all of their interpretation, that at any rate, no matter what scripture you read, the most important thing was human life to God. Human life. Human life is the most important thing in any given situation. And so they believed that you could trump any written law in an effort to preserve, protect, and take care of human life. The similarities for me in hearing about the debates in the first century, the debates that we have in the 21st century 
are astounding. So basically what they would say is, if you need to violate another law in order to practice this, this philosophy, you could, and God would be okay with it. Just so you know, in the first century, Pharisees practiced this principle. Here's where it gets interesting. Pay close attention to this. Samaritans, Samaritans held to Torah literalism. They held to Torah literalism, which means there was no afterlife, which means as a faithful follower of the law, you didn't get near a dead body because Leviticus chapter 21 says that you shouldn't get near a dead body and you, you shouldn't be close to or be in proximity to bodies that are on the verge of death. So when Jesus tells this story, everybody's paying close attention. And Jesus says, there's this Samaritan who would never go near a half-dead body, particularly the half-dead body of someone that he didn't care about. He would never risk his own reputation. He would never risk his own belief system. He would never subvert his own theology for somebody that hated him. And Jesus said, a Samaritan picked up this dude, put him on the back of a donkey, carried him, and took care of him because he had pity, compassion, and mercy for him. And then Jesus said these words, go and do likewise. I want you to be willing to abandon whatever it is you think you know or believe because you are loving your neighbor as yourself. It's why Jesus made this statement. All the law and all the prophets hang on this one thing, loving God and loving others. You got to know if you have to abandon everything that you believe, if you have to abandon all of your principles, if you have to abandon everything that you think you know in an effort to love your neighbor well, love your neighbor well. And if you're just, just curious about who your neighbor is, it's that person that you don't get along with, don't like, don't live like, don't believe like, don't agree with. That's the person that's your neighbor. I want you to stop treating that person that's close to you with dignity and respect and then allowing the people on the other side of the aisle or the other side of the line to be shuffled off as them. There is no them. They are all your neighbors. All of them are your neighbors. And I want you to sacrifice what's yours philosophically and physically in an effort to show them compassion. And in case you needed to be reminded of why, because I treated you like a neighbor. And if I'm going to treat you like a neighbor, meaning I came to you while you were still sinners, meaning I came to you when you had your hand up against my face, I came to you when you had your back turned against me, those are the kind of people that I want you to go after and seek and pursue and strive and fight to love like crazy. Now, let me give you a really, really practical example of this and we'll be done. On June 18th, 1964, there was a man who lived in St. Augustine, Florida. His name was James Brock. He was a Christian, and he was the manager of the Monson Motor Lodge. Monson Motor Lodge became extremely popular in the discussion of the civil rights movement because at this particular time in American history, there were whites-only bathrooms and whites-only restaurants and whites-only hotels and whites-only swimming pools. And this man was the manager of one of these whites-only swimming pools.
swimming pools. And there was a young man named Dr. Martin Luther King who rallied some troops, some young guys who were wanting to stir the water a little bit, who said, we're not going to settle for status quo. And he said, hey, I want you to go down to that pool in St. Augustine, and I want you to start swimming. You know what Martin Luther King was saying? I want you to go start trouble, right? For anybody who wants to praise Martin Luther King, but then at the same time thinks that we should stay out of stuff and not start any trouble, you need to remember what Martin Luther King stood for. Let's bring the conversation that we all have in the background to the surface. Let's talk about what we actually live, think, and believe, right? So I said, I want you to go in there and swim. And these young African-Americans went down to this pool and started swimming at this hotel. And James Brock proceeds to grab some cleaning solution. At the time, it was all he could find. It was muriatic acid. And he proceeds out to the pool. And there's actually a really famous picture where you've got James Brock walking around the pool and he's pouring muriatic acid into the water that these African-Americans are swimming in. Now, while we may look at this picture and see this act as cruel in retrospect, he later said, and tell me if this doesn't sound familiar in light of current rhetoric, he later said, and I quote, he wasn't intending or desiring to hurt anyone. He was simply using the acid as a deterrent a way to enforce the law that was already on the books, that this was a whites-only pool. And if those kids would have just followed the law, they wouldn't have been put in harm's way. Sorry, I'm, I'm, stepping, I'm stepping on way too many toes, right? I'm getting way too political. I mean, let me back off my high horses for a minute. Shortly thereafter, there was a guy who was on television. His name was Fred Rogers, and he hosted a show called Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. He had always been ahead of the curve when it came to women's rights and civil rights. He had women on his show before women were usually cast on television, particularly television for children. He had African-Americans on his show long before anybody else had an African-American on their television show. And one of the characters that was a recurring character was a man played by uh, an actor known as Francois Clemens. And he played a character on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood known as Officer Clemens. Anybody grow up watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, you remember Officer Clemens? He was on there for 30 years. He was on there, it was a recurring character. Shortly after this happened, Mr. Rogers, who wrote, directed, and put together all of the content for Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood himself, decided they were going to do a segment where it was a hot summer day and Mr. Rogers was hanging out in the backyard and he happened to be cooling himself off by putting his feet into a swimming pool when Officer Clemens came by. You got that picture, Sean? And he invited Officer Clemens to take off his shoes and get in the pool with him and directly... And astoundingly and specifically, he was making a public and bold statement. And that is, even though we don't always act like it, the people who are different than us, the people who are on the other side than us, the people who we've said don't deserve to be here with us, guess what? They are our neighbor. And Jesus told me a long time ago that I should love him and love my neighbor. And so I'm going to find the guy who's the most different from me. I'm going to put him on television. I'm going to put him in a pool with me. And I'm going to show you this is how we treat people who are different than us. 
When someone asked Mr. Rogers the question, where did you get this idea? He said, well, Jesus did this thing right before he died where he washed his disciples' feet. And I thought, what better picture than for me to wash Officer Clemens' feet and to show how we should treat our neighbor. Now, when we see this picture, we see it as run-of-the-mill, happenstance. We see this kind of thing on television all the time. But when this happened, this was revolutionary. This was the kind of thing you get pulled off a TV for. This was the kind of thing that you get in a lot of trouble for, right? 23 years after this photograph was taken, in 1992, there were riots in LA because there was huge tension between law enforcement and the African-American community. And in case you think that Mr. Rogers settled down in his old age, after that took place in 1993, Mr. Rogers invited Officer Clemens back to the show and he washed his feet again on set. 23 years later, an overt reminder that whether we act like it or not, we are all, all, all neighbors and we should treat each other like it. And if you need an example for how to treat your neighbor, open your Bible to the book of Luke and see how Jesus says that we should treat our neighbor and be reminded of who he classifies as our neighbor. One last thing, and I'll let you go. One day on set, shortly after this took place, Francois had already done a scene and had come back from behind the camera or from in front of the camera and came back around to behind the camera and Mr. Rogers was still on set. And to give you the, the backstory, Francois Clemens was an openly practicing homosexual, a lifestyle that Mr. Rogers vehemently and specifically disagreed with, was not okay with, didn't believe was right. In fact, for years, Mr. Rogers asked Officer Clemens, because of their relationship with children, asked him to not go publicly and openly to gay bars and clubs because he didn't want to run the risk of somebody taking his picture and then having to have a conversation with a child that they weren't ready to have yet. And it wasn't that he took issue with Officer Clemens. It was that he held with such esteem and care the conversations they were going to have children. So here's two guys from opposite sides of the tracks. Here's two guys with opposite skin colors. Here's two guys with differing belief systems. Officer Clemens comes around behind the camera. Mr. Rogers is still in front of the camera. And he began to sing a song that he wrote. And let's just be honest, all of Mr. Rogers' songs were super cheesy. Super cheesy, right? But he began to sing these words. And as he sang these words, he looked past the camera and he looked right at Francois. And he said, you make every day a special day by just being you. Lights off, camera closes, Mr. Rogers walks off set. Francois grabbed him and said, Fred, were you singing that to me? And he said, Francois, I've been saying that to you for years. Today, you finally listened. Here's a guy who does not agree with a lifestyle choice, 
here's a guy, here's a guy who is on the opposite end of the spectrum of cultural preference, but still has the decency to look at someone in the eye and says, you are special, not because you do something, say something, or live a certain way. You are special just because you're you, and God created you in the image of himself with value and with worth and with purpose. And I don't care how many people tell me that you're different than me, that we believe different, that we shouldn't be on TV together. You are my neighbor. So the next time, you hear that Mr. Rogers song, Won't You Be My Neighbor? I want you to ask yourself this question. Are you willing to sing that song to someone that you disagree with? Are you willing to sing that song with that person you got in a huge Facebook debate with? Are you willing to sing that song to someone that believes, lives, acts, and operates different than you? Because it's easy to love those who are already close to you. The challenge for us and that Jesus has given us is not to love those who are already close, but it's to make those who are far away our neighbors. And maybe it's just me, but I feel like that this is a word for 2018. I feel like this is a message for us in 2018 that people who don't agree, live, think, or act like us are our neighbors. People are not political punchlines. They are our neighbors. People aren't used for our advantage. They are our neighbors. And if you ever wondered what it is you're supposed to do with your neighbor, you're supposed to love your neighbor. And if you're not sure what that means, if you think that definition is too wide, just go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 when it explains how to love. Be patient with each other. Be kind with each other. Don't hold records of wrongs of one another. This is how you love your neighbor. Church, we've got work to do. So we're not going to sit here anymore and talk about it. We're going to go do it. When we leave this place today, we've got work to do. And the work is this, figuring out who Jesus calls our neighbor and going and loving them well. God, thank you for this reminder that you have given us through the gospel writer of Luke and via the vehicle of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. We love you and we praise you for the way that you use people in our lives to give us glimpses of your character in your heart. We thank you for the understanding that you've given us of your word. We thank you for the fact that we live in a day and a time when we can research what it is you meant when you said what you said, and we can seek to operate accordingly. May we be people who are known as your disciples because of how well we love one another. May we carry that reputation and hold it sacred. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. And God's church said,